We thank you that you have provided for us our so great salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit. And we thank you for your plan that goes from eternity to eternity. We ask now that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts to the content of the law, that we can see more of you through how you revealed yourself at this point in history. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we're going to continue with the uh, law. And uh, I was reminded of, because uh, I like to kind of review from time to time as we go through this material. Um, we're at that point in the progress. And we have gone through some of these events, particularly last year. Uh, we went into the event of the uh, Noahic Covenant. And you remember that's where God established the divine institution of the state so that we have an authority structure set up in the post-fall world. And that authority structure was an authority structure that was not there in Eden. It was not there after the fall. It was not there through Noah's generation. And it wasn't until after the flood and we start the rise of what we now call civilization that God instituted um, the, the, the divine institution of, of the civil government. And remember we said that that institution is not optional, it's mandatory. It's there for a reason. Society without the power of the sword, without the power of the government, without the power of the state, uh, degenerates into a big anarchy, anarchistic mess. Um, and I was uh, reminded of this uh, last night when I got some email from my son who... Um, studying at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and the Air Force Institute of Technology there. And a lot of foreign military officers also come there to study. And uh, Jonathan and his wife had invited over a Christian, several of the Christians, a real strong Christian group there. And um, one of the, their acquaintances was a, a female officer from Albania who was in this country. And um, in this email, Jonathan had followed up with her, of course, and uh, she's still here on this tour, and now she's a lady without a country because the country's totally dissolved. And um, attached to her letter was a letter from her pastor. They've evacuated 99% of the missionaries except this one man who was an American who started this church that she trusted the Lord through. And he's decided that he would evacuate his wife and kids, but he would stay on because he feels like in the scripture the hireling will flee the flock, but the pastor won't. So he's going to stay. And uh, so it was about two or three pages of material about what's going on in Albania. And basically, uh, uh, the letter pointed out several things that struck me in the light of what we've been studying here about the necessity of the state. We don't often appreciate it. But when you see something like Albania, what we want to reflect upon is that that's the sin nature let loose. In other words, you can argue all night and we all can, about what form of government or this or that particular defect in the government. Uh, but if we didn't have the civil institution of the state, you always wind up with an anarchistic riot and a mess. Um, you can't do business. You can't put out fires. You can't conduct medical help in the middle of a mob. And the first thing, always the first thing that has to happen is that you have to establish law and order first. Then after that, you deal with the other things. And um, 
in Albania, it's interesting, as Pastor was saying, people, 10 or 15 people got shot the day before he, he wrote the letter, but they, hadn't got sh- they didn't get shot because people were shooting at them. They got shot because guys are firing rifles up in the air and the bullets come down and hit people. So, I mean, really stupid. But this is what happens. Businesses are gone. You know, people spend all their life getting a business together. That's all gone. You can tear down a society in two days. And it takes you 20 years to build. And this is what's happening in Albania. And we can be very thankful. We need to temper our criticism sometimes of our government and our state. Like the guy said, he says, after I saw those Marines with their, the American flag on their shoulder and the helicopters coming down to evacuate my wife and children, he says, I will gladly pay my taxes. And it's true. After you have an experience like that, faced with the utter anarchy, that you come back to basics. And this is the thing that we want to remember, because if you remember when we went back through this, and we said that the divine institution of the state, the essence of the state, people don't like to hear this. It's not a popular message. But in the scripture, the essence of the state is the power to take life. That means a forcible law enforcement. That's what it means. Now, you can add to that welfare and social programs and all the rest, but when it goes back to the very core function of what is the social function of government, the social function of government is to maintain order. If you can think of a a farmer, for example, farming land, um, you know, he, he can... Uh, he can do all he wants to, but if the weather doesn't cooperate, he doesn't have some order and peace out there to do his land, he's not going to be farming. The business owner can't run his store in the middle of mobs. So society has to have a minimum amount of order or everything else goes down the drain. So it's interesting that the scriptures cut to the quick here at the very start when they deal with law and government here instituted, that it is the power to take life, And then at Mount Sinai, God gives an example of how he rules. And I think we'll see if you've been able to glimpse sections of this law code, you realize that God exercised capital punishment. There was law enforcement, his law that was enforced, and it was very serious. And it it encompassed every area of society is, is addressed in this law code. So there's no getting around it. In fact, in the millennial kingdom, it's interesting that one of the titles of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Millennial Kingdom, and you read about it in the book of Revelation, is that he rules the nations with a rod of iron. Now, I mean, think about what that says. In the Millennial Kingdom, we have universal world peace for a thousand years. But it's because Jesus Christ rules the nations with a rod of iron. That means by force. So either people submit to the Lord from their heart or they will be forcibly subdued. That's basically the options. And that's how you have peace. So it's, it may not sound like a pretty picture. It's not sentimental for sure. But the reason why it's so fierce, so harsh sounding, is because we live in a fallen world. It goes back to this framework that we should look at again and again. Is We go back to the fall, that we live in an abnormal universe. We live in an abnormal society. We're all sinners. So if it sounds harsh, whose fault is that? It's not God's. We are the ones who fell. So let's look tonight. Uh, we're going to start in the notes on page 71 because we're going to go back to the 
results of Mount Sinai. Remember we said that certain doctrines, certain truths of the Christian faith come out of all of these events. And we've been looking at God giving the law and we said that when God gave the law, God addressed the heart. And if you look and compare the Mosaic Law Code with secular law codes, and in the same time, in the ancient law codes, put them side by side, you'll see that in the Mosaic Law, God speaks, do this for me. Don't do it for society. You do it for me. So the law is addressed first to the heart. It's private law and then public law. Whereas secular law codes are only public laws. They don't reach deep enough into the heart. That's the difference between the law given here and the law made up by human legislators. Now we want to go to uh, some of the um, features that, that we said fall out of all this. And one of them, we said, was that the idea of revelation. So, um, if we look at Revelation for a minute, not the book of Revelation, but the act of Revelation, what we have is God, who is omniscient, talking to man who has knowledge but who is finite and limited. You have God able to speak to man because of a miraculous thing called language. That's the link. And if we didn't have language, we couldn't talk to each other and God couldn't talk to us. He's the author of language. And the language that He has given us is so powerful that it's adequate not only for human-to-human communication, but for the creator-to-man and the creature communication. Language is an extremely powerful tool. And it's this that, of course, we are concerned with, with revelation, inspiration, and canonicity, which we're going to talk about tonight. And we always want to remember God is holy and man is sinner. And so if we were just left with man and his sin, this would not be on a speaking relationship. So the reason that we can listen to God and why He does speak to us is because He's also love and He ex- exercises His love and grace and provides a way through His holiness so that this conversation can proceed and we can be illuminated in our hearts. But it's only because of His grace, not because of who and what we are and our, all of our giant intellects. Okay. Revelation has certain characteristics, we said. One of those characteristics is that it is verbal. And we emphasize that. Why? Why bother with saying that? I bother saying that for this reason. We live in what is called the New Age. And in the New Age, we're getting an influx of oriental styles of thinking about religion. And it's characteristic of oriental religions not to have verbal revelation. If you have studied Buddhism or Zen or Hinduism, uh, some of the Zen people come up with these things like this saying, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And they'll evidently try try to keep these uh, puzzles coming because what they want you to do after you've listened to enough of them is to agree that you can't know God through words. So all all the means that men exercise are just uh, useless as far as uh, revelation. But when God speaks, it's based on His words. So we have a standard or a criteria. 
Now the next one we're going to deal with is Revelation is personal. And we said, uh, we covered this last time also, um, that means that we can't really be neutral. We can't stand off and look at the Revelation, be it in the rainbow after a storm, or whether it's enjoying music, or whether it's reading the Bible. Uh, we can't approach these things without finally coming to terms with God. And we are, we are dealing with Him at every point that we touch these things. Um, and then we said that Revelation is historical, meaning that God reveals Himself from time to time in history, but not necessarily continually. So it's historical, meaning that all men don't get their own private version. This revelation is a public thing. It's given at certain times and then it's not given for a while. The human race is given a few centuries to think about what was said. And then later on in another age, God will reveal some more things. And right now he hasn't spoken in history since the close of the New Testament canon, in spite of all the cults saying that they got their private word or something like that. God has not spoken and will not speak again until just prior to the return of Christ. And then the prophets break out. The line of the prophets come out again. And, of course, what's holding that up is the state of the nation Israel. Because one of the things Jesus said is, you won't hear me, and I won't talk to you, and I won't come back to this earth until you welcome me as the king of kings. And so that stands. That was his last word. And so what's blocking the return of Christ in one sense is the spiritual status quo of the nation Israel and what they're doing in history. So all this is tied up and my point here in this third point isn't to get off on all those topics as so much to say that it's not true that we have the right to go out and expect God to personally speak his own special revelation to us. He has given us enough in this book and the Holy Spirit in our hearts through which we can know him. So that gets the emphasis off of uh, of our own individual things and onto the broad stream of Revelation. Now, one of the things we want to look at tonight is that Revelation is comprehensive. And that means that God speaks to every area. And um, we want to go through some of the things. Let's turn to the book of Deuteronomy. And we just want to skim, say, start with Deuteronomy 12, because these are some of the details. You could go through Numbers, we could go through Leviticus, could go through Exodus 21 through 23. There's a number of places you can do this just for fun, but um, Deuteronomy is kind of neat because it's all together. It's all one sermon. By the way, if you want to get an idea of how long sermons were in Israel, take a stopwatch and read the book of Deuteronomy to yourself and then cut the watch when you get to chapter 33 and see how long it takes. I did that once. I forgot how long it took. It took a pretty healthy long time. Um, it wasn't a five-minute soundbite, for sure. And that's how long Moses preached. So the book of Deuteronomy is actually a sermon. Okay, these are the statutes, cha chapter 12, verse 1, these are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord your God has given you. And notice... The, one of the first things that is done is in verse 2. It sounds strange. And you have to ask why. And I, let's just throw this question out for just a few minutes of thought and exercise. 
The first thing of all the statutes and commandments is numbered first two. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, you will tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, burn their ash tree with fire, and you will cut down the images of their gods. You shall obliterate their name from that place. Now, why do you think... Let's throw this up for some... Uh, some thought. Why is it that these Old Testament laws seem so heavily dependent on this issue of idolatry? I'll give you another illustration. We don't have time to go to the text. But when the rules of evidence are given in Scripture to control the judicial proceedings, one of the most strange verses that you read in the middle of the, of the rules of how a judge is to convene a court is he can't do it next to a grove of trees. Now, what is the problem of having a courtroom next to the grove of the trees? Because the grove of trees was the place where these people worshipped. So again, the question, why are we concerned when we're talking about judicial proceedings, are we worried about a grove of trees? Why, when we come out with these uh, uh, statutes and judgments, are we concerned with altars? Anybody got an idea of why that's so? Let's just think about what... What do those trees, groves, and everything else, in the, in the big picture, men come there to worship gods. Who created those gods? Men. And when men create their own gods, what are they ultimately doing? They're defining reality. They are, that's their presupposition. They are, set, they are arguing that I have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and I can know good and evil like God himself can know and I can become the final arbiter. I will set up the total meaning for my life. So it's the ultimate authority. And isn't it striking that when you go into the law codes, the first thing that goes is snipping off any connection with paganism. What is the implication? If God does this, isn't the implication that you can't get just law on a pagan basis? And this is precisely the argument that we're seeing here in Scripture. Now think of that and that line of logic against what you hear in our society at large today. That you can have law common to all kinds of beliefs. All you have to do is agree on a certain minimum set of behavior standards which we then codify and call that the public law and say now people of different beliefs all come together under the same tent and we all have the same common understanding of law. See, something's wrong here. Either the secular mind today is right, and this is wrong, or if this is right, then something's radically wrong with the way we normally look at this. And one or the other of these things is out of line here. So what we need to do when we look at passages like this is say, well, Lord, what is the connection? Why do you want us to be so hard-nosed about verses 2 and 3? Why do you want all this eliminated? Why don't you want courts convened where there's a sense of religious contamination? Well, what did we say was the nature of the law? Going back, just to review a minute, we said, what distinguished Mount Sinai from pagan law? It was addressed to the heart. By whom? God. So when you deal with law, you're dealing with what ought to be true, what ought to be true. It's values and ethics and law all wrapped up together. And you can't have values, ethics, and law without a source for them. 
And the Bible insists that the source for all of those values, ethics, and law is God. It's got to be God. It can't be man. If it's going to be man, what do you do about Nuremberg? Remember, we went through that. That's the alternative. You can't do it. And so the Bible is very insistent that once you let go of the creator-creature distinction, you can't have genuine law. Now, people will argue with you and say, oh, but I know, uh, you know China or Japan and these other areas have law. But usually what's happened there is that you have gotten wisdom principles without a root. And even those laws don't last long. Witness, for example, Tiananmen Square. What happened in Tiananmen Square? Well, it was because it wasn't any liberty with the law. So, point is that when you start the law, you see immediately religion is described in these law codes. Now let's skim down further. Um, as, as you see, now let's try to name the areas uh, that you'd observe from, from areas of life. Um, it's a whole thing from verse 6 on through 12 that deals with worship. Uh, you'll notice in verse 12, very interesting observation there, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion of inheritance with you. Be careful you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see, but in the place that the Lord you chooses. But do you notice in verse 12, you will rejoice before the Lord? If you read the descriptions of worship in the book of Leviticus, you know what it sounds like? They had parties. I mean, they came, they feasted, and they were serious, but it was a time of rejoicing. So, the idea of a you know, supper or something, a church supper, is actually, you see it in the scriptures. It's a time of rejoicing. It's not just somber. As, as mighty as the God of the scriptures is, and as, as powerful as, particularly in the Old Testament, he appears, he calls his people to come before and enjoy themselves in his presence. Notice a little clause in verse 12. Do you notice something there that you might not expect to have seen in a pagan version of this law. Did anybody catch something there in verse um, uh, 12? When we think of, for example, my notes, I point out in the bottom page 71, that in the ancient law codes of the other countries, there was class distinctions. Now, their slaves are mentioned in verse 12, uh, but the slaves that are mentioned there are not kidnapped slaves, as we know the word slave. There's somebody else which basically summarizes their economic slaves. Male and female uh, servants. Is there anybody, in other words, in verse 12, excluded? Everybody has the right to come and rejoice before the Lord. There were no class distinctions. And this is a tremendous and powerful social unifier in that society. It's not just a small point. By God, by virtue of saying, I want all classes, I want all strata to come before me. When you come before me, you are all one. So this prevented a hierarchy that, that could have developed. So we go on in chapter 12 and uh, notice, for example, in verse uh, 15, um, 16, 17, what's the area of life described there? Eating, diet. So now we've gone from religion to diet. Um, you can, um, verse 22, verse 23, you'll notice, 
You see how it's talking about just as gazelle deer is eaten, so you shall eat it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. Only be sure not to eat the blood, um, so forth and so on. Uh, we go through on chapter 13. We get into the controls on testing religious phenomena for truthity or falsity. There's certain empirical tests given. Why, that, why was that given in the law, by the way? What happened to a false prophet? If a guy got up and taught false doctrine in Israel, what happened? He got killed. Capital offense. So, uh, obviously the courts had to be given rules of evidence. So, chapter 13 here, as well as chapter 22, give you the rules that the courts used to determine whether a prophet was true or false. You can try that on some of the cults today. It would be interesting. Um, then uh, in, verse, in, in uh, chapter 14, uh, a complete line. Look at the detailed codes in verse 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 in chapter 14 of Deuteronomy. The clean and the unclean animals. You know what the word clean is? Kosher. And from which we get kosher, food. So, why, is, why are all these, these diets? Because God, when He speaks His revelation, speaks to all areas of life. So he speaks to eating. And we could go on and look at some other things. Um, you'll also notice in verse 21, little minor point, uh, the Mosaic Law exercised humane uh, consideration of animal rights. Um, remember we went in a big thing about when back at Noah, when, when carnivorous diet was first introduced to the human race legally and lawfully, and people today believe in vegetarianism, it's healthier and this and that. And Hinduism has always believed in vegetarianism. That's why the cows run all over the streets in India. And so the point is that there's a certain reluctance on the part of the pagan mind to eat meat, always has been, and God says, eat it. Now, that means you have to kill animals to eat. And we said, well, why is that? Because apparently, after the flood, God wanted us to understand that civilization obtains its nourishment from death. That we live because others die. And one of the reasons, deeply, why modern people who are against meat-eating have, have a real problem, some of them haven't thought this through yet, but the problem with it is that it's essentially denying my sinfulness. It's saying, I will sustain myself without death. I will not eat. I will not permit animals to give their lives for me. Uh, that comes very close, you see, to getting out of the mentality that Christ said in John 6, you shall eat, not only of my body, but also my blood. And you'll notice here in the Old Testament there's a reluctance. You could eat the body and the flesh, but not the blood. When you come to Christ, you eat both. So the eating of animals is a pre preparation for us to understand that we are only saved by the death of someone who died for us. It's humiliating to realize that we caused that. And when maybe we are squeamish about killing animals. But we are causing that. We caused the problem. That was not the way it was originally from creation. So in a one sense, it is abnormal. But even in these passages, there's consideration for animals. Notice in verse 21. You shall not eat anything which dies of itself. You may give it to the alien who is in your town, so he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. By the way, notice, cleanliness and public health went with holiness. 
The two were tied together. Um, you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. That's a strange little verse. What's that talking about? It's, it's just sensitivity. Don't wipe out the litter and the mother. And several other places this is mentioned. So there's a, there's a humaneness. You, 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 you take one or you take the other, but you don't wipe the whole thing out. It's not just this brutal, thoughtless extermination of animals. It's done, but done carefully. So there is a resistance to brutality to animals in the scripture. And of course, I mentioned earlier, what do you find in the Sabbath legislation? It's addressed to the animals. All the work animals had the day off, just like people had the day off. So you rested your horses, you rested your oxen. It was a consideration for those animals that were working for us. Um, Notice in um, verse 24 and 25 and 26, it's uh, rules about money exchange. And so we deal with the issue of currency and currency transactions. That was being violated in Jesus' day and what happened? What did Jesus do in one of the most famous events of his life? One of the most violent events of his life. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, took a whip and went in and faced the mafia, basically, that were running the temple operations. And he tipped over the currency, went all over the place. You talk about a one-man riot. Jesus took it. It's always interesting in this abortion thing to talk about blocking public access. It's very interesting that Jesus in that time blocked public access. He went in there and tore the place apart, basically. And he did so because of the violations that were occurring in these areas of the law. Um, Notice in chapter 15, we just want to skim through there because some of you maybe, this is all new, you've never had a chance to read through the law and I urge you to do this. If you haven't done it before, um, I can only sample things tonight quickly to kind of give you a flavor. But notice in chapter 15, in verse 1, verse 2, now we have uh, rules about loans. The scriptures have considerable economic rules. And one of the rules was that you could not have a loan uh, equal or less, you you were limited to six, six years. Now that created some economic problems because if someone came to you for a loan and they're only two years away for the sabbatical rest, you know, you've got a little problem here. And so you'll notice that in these sections of scripture that the Holy Spirit is coping with the fallout of this. Can anybody... Uh, suggest why that is in the Mosaic Law Code. Do you see any meaning in why God interfered, as it were, with the issue of debts? When we are in debt, what does the book of Proverbs say? We're, We're a slave to the lender. Is any form of slavery revelatory does God, is God's picture of salvation that of an abject slave? From where had the Jews been delivered? From Egypt, from slavery. And he doesn't want his society to be filled with economic slaves. And the, this was a way that had it been followed, which it wasn't, but had this rule been followed, the indebtedness levels of Israel would have been phenomenally low. And with a society that is low in debt and high in cash, it's tremendously resilient. One of the reasons Albania went down is because of the money. Everybody was in this Ponzi scheme and the whole thing fell apart. But here, 
where you have checks and balances on loans, checks and balances on interests, there God reached into the pocketbook and said, not only am I going to tell you what to eat, I'm going to tell you how to lend your money. Now, there's a debate, and we can't go into it, whether these were charitable loans or business loans and so forth and so on. But um, the whole point is, the big point for tonight isn't to get into all the details. The point tonight is, just notice the areas, that Revelation is comprehensive and it talks to every area. One other thing that I wanted to skim over um, was in chapter 19. If you go over there for just a minute... You'll notice, I, I want you to look at verses 4 um, through 10. Now, this is a particular set of rules that were given to the, to the people for the people's courts, the elder courts. And it had to deal with the issue of murder. And in this case, it had to deal with how to separate manslaughter, accidental murder, from murder. And because murder was a capital offense. So, in verse 4... Uh, verse 2, rather, says, so, so, You shall set aside three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which the Lord God gives you. You shall prepare the roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land. Notice roads in verse 3. That's going to come up. There's got to be access to these cities. So they had to get their engineers out and build a road system to air at least these three cities. Now, this is the case of the manslayer who may flee there and live when he kills his friend unintentionally, not hating him previously. As when a man goes into the forest with his friend to cut wood, his hand swings the axe to cut down the tree, the iron head slips off the handle and strikes his friend so he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood pursue the manslayer in the heat of his anger and overtake him, because the way is long and take his life, though he was not deserving of death since he had not hated him previously. Now, we can get into all kinds of things here, but notice in verse 6 the phrase, overtake him because the way is long. Relate that observation in verse 6 back to verse 3 and the preparation of highways and roads. You see, they divided the area into three parts so that a, a city of refuge would be reasonably close by. Every part of as they made everything kind of equal distance of these three cities. And that was the idea to provide for manslaughter, safety for manslaughter situation. So anyway, the idea is you can go into all kinds of things. Chapter 20, these are rules of engagement given to the army in battle. Uh, one of the things which we're going to deal with uh, in the next chapter deals with holy war. Um, notice in verse 10, from verse 10 of chapter 20 down through verse 18, there's one, um, uh, well, for chapter, whoops, chapter 20, verse 10, down to 14, that section are the rules of engagement um, to um, the cities that are in the land. Now from verse 15, this you should do those cities very far from you, um, Verse 16 and following, oh, wait, correct, I got it backwards. From verse 10 to 15, those are the cities that would normally be around the area that might have a battle with. So that's regular war from verse 10 to 15. But notice how carefully verse 16, 17, and 18 change the rules of engagement for military operations. 
military operations prior to that, there was an offer of peace. There was grace offered. But there is no grace offered in verse 16, 17, and 18. That kind of warfare is called holy war, which we get into. It's one of the most controversial sections of all the Bible. Why did God obliterate this? And that's coming up in the next section. So I think we've seen enough tonight to get basically the idea there's whole kinds of health rules and everything in it. The law was comprehensive. Um, on the notes, in the bottom of page 71, just so to contrast what you just read, I quote a section from the Code of Hammurabi. Notice this code in, verse, in, in uh, the bottom of page 71. If the victim had died because of his blow, he shall swear that it was not a deliberate injury, and if it was a member of the aristocracy, he shall pay one-half mina of silver. If it was a member of the commonality, he shall pay one-third mina of silver. In other words, the low class was worth less. So there you have, in the pagan law code, embedded in the very code, a class distinction when it comes to justice. When you go to the scripture codes, you can't find that. You'll find some things about the slaves and so on, but you won't find it like this. Okay, now the last section. Um, on page 72, we deal with revelation is prophetic, and what we mean by that is that the scriptures contain a series of prophets. Here's Moses. He's the, the main author of the law, humanly speaking, and after him would come a series of prophets. And these prophets would all go back to the law code. You see that in the rest of the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Nahum, Habakkuk, all these guys that you'll read about and have these funny names. All those men are men who go back to Moses. They're not adding at all to Moses. They are like prosecuting attorneys who are prosecuting the nation based on their violations of the Mosaic Treaty. And if you can see your Old Testament that way, it makes it stand out for you. And you realize that when you read in Isaiah, you're not reading anything new in any of the prophets. All they're doing is administering the law codes that were given way back in Moses' time. Nothing has changed. So that's the idea of, of, the, of the prophetic act. And if you turn on page 73 of the notes, you'll see a quote from a, a Jewish scholar. And uh, Dr. Kaufman here, I think, makes an interesting observation that if you study prophecy as given in the nation Israel and the Jews, and then contrast prophets found in Gentile nations or people who claim to be prophets, you see there's a difference. And here's the difference. What makes the history of the Israelite prophecy sui generis is the succession of apostles of God that come to the people throughout the ages. Such a line, and this is important, this, this sentence, such a line of apostle prophets is unknown in paganism. In pagan cultures, you'll have a prophet here and a prophet there. You do not have a long line of prophets. That is only true in Jewish Israel. Just like we said, there's certainly uh, the Jews are the only ones that had covenants with their God. They're the only people with a prophetic. These are objective historical facts. Can't be debated. That's the way it is. So we as Christians need to be sharp on this. This is something, a feather in our hat, so to speak, as Bible-believing Christians, that we can calmly point. doesn't make any difference if you believe in God or not. You've got to deal with history, folks. And there was a people called Israel... And that people called Israel made covenants with their God, or God made covenants with them. Show me where that's true elsewhere. And they had a line of prophets. How many years with this line of prophets? Well, if Moses dates in 1400 B.C., 
and you go down to the time of Christ and the apostles, you've got 14 centuries plus of prophets. Now, the, the challenge to the non-Christian is, show me another case of that. Very simple. Show me one other case in history where you have 14 centuries of prophets basically saying the same thing. Okay, that's something objective we can point out to our, our friends. Now we want to come and cover, in the remaining time tonight, two other subsidiary doctrines to the doctrine of Revelation. These fall out and basically depend upon Revelation. So we have Revelation, the idea that God speaks in history publicly. And then from that, we develop the doctrine of inspiration, a description of the Bible, basically. And then we, from that, deal with something else called canonicity. We want to cover those briefly now. Inspiration and canonicity. In the picture on page 73, I show you the relationship between revelation and inspiration. The doctrine of inspiration, that word, inspire, comes from uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. That's historically where that word came from. Because in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says the scriptures are God-breathed. Theopnupsia. It's a verb, it's a word that uh, Paul made up, apparently. Can't find it in Greek dictionaries. It doesn't exist anywhere in the Greek pagan culture. Just a word he coined. That God breathed out the scriptures. Paul didn't mean that there wasn't human beings doing the writing, but somehow God superintended the process that no matter how the men, whether they heard the word, whether they got it from somebody else like Luke, whatever the means was, that the final written product was from God. Now, there are lots of things in the Scriptures that we're missing. We, we have lost a lot of things. John, the Gospel. Turn to the end of the Gospel of John and you'll see a little note, a very famous one. You've undoubtedly seen this, reading the Bible, but it gives you an idea of how much we've lost, never to have found again. And our curiosity would love to find these things. But if you turn to John 21, verses 24 and 25, look at what John says. This is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that were written. So obviously, a lot of material has gone by the board here. There's a lot that's not here in the Bible. So that's why in the, that diagram I write, Revelation was bigger than inspiration. Inspiration deals only with the preserved scriptures. Now, let's just take one minute and think, why is it necessary to have an inspired scripture? Why is it necessary that that scripture that God has given us be inerrant? Remember we covered this a little bit before? What are the scriptures ultimately? What do we say that God does to Israel that is not true of any pagan nation on earth? What is the one feature that's absolutely unique to the Jew? God makes a covenant. If you have a covenant, it's a written document. It's an agreement. And you've got to, after you establish a covenant or a contract, what do you do? You have two parties that agree to a certain behavior. 
So what do you have to do to follow up covenant to make sure the covenant isn't broken? You've got to have a record of behavior. And what is that record of behavior? But it has to be a record that can stand in a courtroom situation. So that's why conceptually what you're looking at here that you're holding in your hands is a record of behavior of God and man that is to be, to be the indictment against man on the basis of a covenant. The new covenant, the old covenant. It's all tied to contracts and behavior. So it's not because some fundamentalist just invented the doctrine of inspiration to give everybody a hard time. Inspiration and inerrancy flow naturally and conceptually out of the idea of the Bible as a covenant. Um, if you turn to page 74, to give you an idea that the fundamentalists weren't the first people to think this up, I deliberately selected at the top of page 74 some ammunition for you to use. Here are some classic proofs that the fundamentalism, by the way, started in 1900. So, I mean, every quote here is prior to the fundamentalists. Look at, look at, the, look at the, uh, the belief historically in the inerrancy of the Bible. Augustine, within Roman Catholicism, said, I believe most firmly that no one of these authors has erred in any respect in writing. It's Augustine's own words. We didn't make it up. Wasn't a fundamentalist saying that. Within Lutheranism, Luther said, the scriptures have never erred. It can't be changed even by the author of the scripture. And that makes sense if you think about it. When you write a business contract and tomorrow you say, oops, oh man, I forgot to put it in. What is your other party going to say? Sorry, foul. You know, that the contract was made yesterday. You wouldn't go through and tear the whole thing up and rewrite it. But once the contract is made, all parties to the contract must submit to the contract. See? One other passage where you can see this is the last verse of the Bible, New Testament, Revelation. Let's turn there. Revelation 22. Okay, in Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life, from the holy city which are written in this book. Now, does that sound like God's serious about keeping this contractual terminology straight? Well, of course he is. Because all of history has got to be measured against the contract. You can't mess with a ruler. The ruler, that's what you use to build everything else with. So, the idea then is, and canonicity is, yes, the Bible came through the church, but no, once the Bible comes into existence, the Bible, not the church, is the authority. That's the difference. And Rome says, no, we believe that this church is the continuing authority, and so there's a big debate. But that's the nature of the discussion. Now, very quickly, before our time's out tonight, I want to also show, go through some of the verses at the bottom of page 75 and 76 to give you a flavor of how the Bible came into existence. And I guess we can start with, uh, I like to start by at least going through the Bible quickly, chronologically. So if we'll turn over to Judges chapter 18. 
What I want to do is show you some notices that maybe you haven't noticed before in your actual Bible reading. You probably went through these and might not have stopped and, and seen the full import of them. In uh, Judges 18, verse 30, It's not quite clear in some of the translations, but this is what we call a little notice that somebody put in the text after the text was written. And it explains things. Now, the guy who put this in was probably a prophet, a later prophet who, who brought it up to date. It says in verse 30 of uh, chapter 18, The sons of Dan set for themselves a graven image, Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Manasseh. He and his sons are priests of the tribe of Levi until the day of the captivity of the land. Now, when was the captivity of the land? 586. And then there were earlier captivities, of course. But the idea that, see, until the day of the land, the captivity of the land, that's a historical note. Liberals seize on that particular note and say, oh, yeah, that's an argument for late authorship. No, not necessarily. That is a note by a prophet who kept the text up to date. You can see another one in 1 Samuel 9, 9. Now, this is not arguing that the Bible uh, has been tampered with. These, the prophets were the ones who were the custodians of it. In verse 8 of Samuel, there's a, there's a big, long thing, a big story that's going on there. And the servant's talking to Saul about this and that. Now, in verse 9, some of your translations have it in parentheses. But if you look at it, think about what verse 9 is saying. That's another one of those little historical notices put in there, probably by a later prophet, to clarify the text. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, come and let us go to a seer. For he who was called a prophet now was formerly called a seer. You see what we're doing there? That was put in there by somebody who said, I know you guys, when you read this, you're not going to understand it, but here's the way it was back in those days. So it tells you, but we have to know that this was written back in those days. So the notice is not proof, like liberals say, that this is a late author written backwards. It's just proof that the text, once written, was explained by these prophets. They would go in there and, and make these historical notices. And I give you a bunch more on page 76. Now, so much for the notices, and there's one other area that I want to notice. You turn back to page 75. Some of those passages, let's turn to 1, 1 Chronicles 29-29. Uh, uh, you can go through all those uh, on your own, but I just, want you to, to, I just want to point out the fact that when we say that a lot of the canonical, a lot of the scriptures were generated but never collected in the canon. And here's a reference to some of them. In 1 Chronicles 29.29, 29, Now the acts of King David from the first to the last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer, in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the chronicles of Gad the seer. Now, would you tell me where those books are? Those evidently were the first texts, like diaries, kept. And notice what's common to all three of those, Samuel, Nathan, and Gad. What are they all said to be? Prophets. They're not the kings. You notice who's not keeping the records? It's not the kings that are keeping the records. Who's keeping the records? The prophets are. It's that prophetic line of those unnamed men 
many of whom we know their names, but then others we don't. Those are the guys who kept the diaries of what was going on because they are the ones who were led specially by God to have the insight and to capture those moments of history and their meaning. And they were the ones from whom all the rest of the Bible was written. So I hope that gives us some sort of a flavor for the fact that out of the Mount Sinai uh, vision, you have God speaking from the top of a mountain. You have Him speaking publicly and audibly. It's not some sort of kind of feeling. It could be recorded with a tape recorder. You have it written, and the first writing of the law, who did it? On the mountain. God wrote it. He wrote it in rock and brought it back down. So God Himself not only spoke, He wrote it. With due apologies to the historians who don't believe an alphabet existed at the time. It's funny, God had the alphabet. He must have. He wrote it in an alphabetic text. So, here we have the generation of Scripture and we have the line of prophets that protect, superintend that text when they protect it with their lives until at last the canon is closed and when that canon is closed, nobody adds to it. Nobody, not even the church, can add to its own canon. All right, next week we're going to start a whole new area which deals with the next great historical event, the most controversial area of the Scriptures probably, and every skeptic and alive likes to crucify us on the fact that, oh God, in the Old Testament, was such a cruel God. He, he killed people, slaughtered everybody. Yes, he did. Not everybody. He was nice to some people. But, but he did kill, and he ordered mass execution, a genocide. And so what we want to deal with is why is there genocide in the Bible? Father, we thank you that you do honor your word, that you have kept your word. And because you have kept your word, we can trust you. And when things don't go right in our lives, when we are faced with chaos and we don't know what to do, we know that we can always run to the one who is trustworthy. And men may fail us and our friends may fail, but you are always there. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we thank you that we have the solid rock on which we can stand and build our lives. In Christ's name, amen. I'll be available for just a short time tonight for some Q&A afterwards if you want. Uh, I'm not going to stay too long. My wife's had a big, heavy day today when I get home.